welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Darrell Washington, Vivian Guevara, Cameron Rasmussen, and Michelle Greer of the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work, NAASW. Darrell is a PhD student at the University of Chicago School of Social Work. Vivian is the Director of Social Work at the Federal Defenders of New York in Brooklyn, New York, an adjunct faculty at Columbia University School of Social Work, and a facilitator in the community. Cameron works at the Center for Justice at Columbia University and is a PhD student in social welfare at CUNY. Michelle is a black feminist, Brooklyn-raised and social worker trained, who is leaning into practices that foster radical healing, racial, and gender justice. Their collective grew out of the need for social workers to support each other in abolition work, particularly out of the discussions over the last year where many social workers and national social work organizations have supported social workers either working with the police or replacing police and the NAASW says a loud no to both. They share their definitions of abolition and discuss how and if abolition can be applied as a framework for social work. They talk about ways that social work has supported, and continues to support, carceral systems, surveillance and gatekeeping, and the connection to white supremacy and liberalism, individualism. There is also discussion on social workers and social work as a whole not living up to the code of ethics and social work values, especially with the emphasis on licensure and private practice. They emphasize the need to engage in collective work and support to envision the world we want, as well as how to take smaller steps to implement abolition in the present while working towards a long-term, larger vision. Members share their experiences working in the field in ways that do and do not align with abolition and how they navigate that, Again, stressing the importance of how their collective provides a supportive space where they can engage in abolition work. This is an excellent discussion for those looking to learn about abolition, as well as folks who are already doing this work. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now, the interview. So Vivian, Darrell, Cameron, Michelle, I'm so glad to have all of you on doing the work. This has been a little while in the making and just super excited to jump right into this topic that is growing within social work, seems to be a growing movement around abolition an abolitionist social work. So let's jump right in. You know, Michelle, how would you define abolition? Uh, I think about a world in which um, 
we are knocking down the current systems and thinking about the ways in which, and when I say systems, I mean carceral systems, I mean systems that connect to criminalization, that continue to um, incarcerate Black and brown people and connect folks to um, oppressive ways of being. How do we start to think about and get imaginative about other ways of being collectively um, together and actually creating uh, ways of being that allow us to all have access to the things that we need to live our best lives. Um, and I will pass the mic. Darrell, you want to jump in? Um, sure. Uh, to me, abolition, uh, I think I, I always kind of go to this, uh, to me is freedom and liberation and equity in a world where everyone, um, communities can self-sustain themselves and we no longer kind of rely on systems of surveillance and monitoring. And I'll stop there and pass it on. Vivian. Thank you. Um, and I agree with what Michelle and Doral have both said um, and, and defined abolition. I'm, I, I, I'm not, I don't really have my own definition, but my thinking about abolition is including being imaginative, but also uh, including uh, a returning to our ancestry and our roots on how we address harm and how we come together um, to build community and to build systems of accountability. I guess I'm going back to systems. Maybe they're not systems of ways of holding each other accountable um, that don't alienate, that don't discard and that don't uh, harm cause further harm. Cameron. Yeah. I, I, I'll say two things. And one is that when I saw your list of questions, the only one that like made me nervous was this question because it feels like like a lot of pressure to try and define this thing that I feel like I actually read and think and talk about a lot, but then to try and like define it succinctly feels very difficult and feels like pressure filled. Um, the place that I like often go back to is the de definition by critical resistance, and I feel like that is I think almost twenty years old and sort of stands the test of time. For me, like part of what that tells us is about like abolishing prisons and police and punishment, but also abolishing the conditions and the sort of social realities that sort of have made those things um, what they are, and then to create the kinds of um, social conditions that we need in the world. Nice. Yeah. I mean, we could have a whole discussion on definitions and the limitations, <laughs> right, of, of that, but I, I appreciate you all you know, sharing your thoughts on it. Cause I know that people listening, especially folks who are just going to be getting into this idea, like this might be the first time they've ever heard about abolition, you know, or they've heard about it in like a social work context as well. So I think it's important. And that kind of goes right in is like, you know, how does an abolition framework apply to social work? Who wants to take it first? I mean, I can jump in. Um, because I've been trying to write about this for like a long time. And it's a really good question and a hard question. And I think I've landed to where like I've, 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 I'm trying to stop trying to fit abolition into social work. And I'm starting to question like what can, how can social work fit with abolition? And I think of 
I've been in social work school for all of my degrees are in social work from a bachelor's, master's and uh, PhD now. And kind of everything I've been taught around like fighting for social justice, trying to help people realize their right to self-determination. All of that reminds me of abolition the more that I kind of learned. But I feel like um, as someone, I think everyone here knows um, one of my mentors, Jay Kirk James, who, who works at NYU, talks about this dissonance between like social work, kind of like what we talk about in our actions. And I think if you look at the code of ethics, that kind of fits somewhat with abolition, um, kind of fighting against oppression and things of that nature. But social work does have this history of aligning itself with carceral systems and serving as um, kind of a mechanism of surveillance and gatekeeping in some sort. So it's, I think there's a lot of adjusting social work needs to do in order to to fit with abolition. Um, And I appreciate this group because (laughs) we're, we're trying to think through it. So yeah, I'll stop there. I think there's a discussion even within our group about whether or not we should abolish social work and um, thinking about the preamble, at least the first line of the preamble to the code of ethics, to which I guess we're all supposed to be following. The primary mission of the social work profession is to enhance human well-being and help meet the basic human needs of all people with particular attention to the needs and empowerment of people who are vulnerable, oppressed, and living in poverty. And I think at least my experience with social work students, some social work students now, and when I was in social work school, is that there's a large group of social workers and social work students who are concerned with their own personal interests, whether it's financial, professional, and really focused on what they are going to get uh, personally and not focused so much on what they're doing as social workers to uphold that, at least that very first line of the preamble. So I I think that's one of the conversations is, do we abolish social work as well and start somewhere else with how we talk about and think about partnering with with people um, and what we think and how we talk about empowering people and what that means and um, instead of doing things to people and fixing things for people um, rather than partnering with people on this path and this journey. And I'll leave it at that for right now. One, one of the most like compelling and moving parts of abolitionist sort of thinking and practice for me has been the like shift to focusing on like starting with what we need and not like we, the collective uh, we, and having that be what drives how we move instead of starting from the like realities of the moment and saying, we are only going to go as far as this certain political conditions allow. We actually need to start from the place where we actually really need to be and then move and figure out how we sort of move towards that. So that has been like an instrumental sort of shift for me in terms of like, we have to think about where we want to go and and work towards that. Um, And then if we look at social work, so much of social work has been caught up in carceral state power, um, and sort of non-profitization, um, it has not made it possible for us to work towards the things that we actually need. Um, I would say ditto to what everyone said. That's why I'm so grateful to be in this collective group um, to learn and to also be able to build out how we think about this moment, um, how we think about abolition and connection to social work. 
Um, I will say that in, I think there, someone framed to me incremental abolition, which I had never really heard that framing in context of a nonprofit, because that's the space that I occupy most of my days. Um, thinking about the longer vision, I'm definitely into having this conversation about what would it look like to do something outside of social work, to get rid of social work, to have something else. Um, and also what does it look like to do something today? What does it look like to do something a few years, a few decades from now? And what does it look like a hundred years when we're not here? When I have had conversations with folks around abolition and social work, the larger frameworks, the things that are more theoretical are hard for people to grasp and contextualize into their day-to-day. And so a lot of the movement work that's happening right now in Uh, spaces like ours and with other folks who are actualizing the work is what can this look like on a day-to-day basis? What can that descent and these conversations and the craft start to look like? And I don't know if I can name like which one is better in terms of the framework, but like getting there and being able to do that imagining and trying some new stuff out um, is what I'm excited about. You know, as you all are talking about how to apply that an abolition framework to social work. I think we need to talk a little bit about the ways that social work is not abolitionist, right? The ways that social work, and you, and you were getting there in some of your answers just then in terms of like ways that social work is carceral, ways that social work is about doing things for other people with like all these conditions attached, right, to it. Um, so maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about that and maybe even some of your own experiences in, I'm assuming we've all had those social work jobs where we're part of an oppressive system and, you know, we needed the, everyone needs the job, right? So it's like, that's another part of this contradiction is like, we have this profession that says it's all about social justice, but yet we're in a capitalist society and everyone needs to get paid. And can you get paid to do abolition work is a good question, right? So Maybe if we can kind of talk a little bit about that, that could be helpful for folks listening. Well, I feel like my entire social work life has been in carceral systems. Um, starting with my very first internship was with, which was at a, a nursing home, and it wasn't until actually that I started working as a public defender. Where I was like, "Wow, the nursing home life is pretty similar to carceral life." At least the nursing home that I worked at. And I, and thinking back and, you know, people can't leave. Um, you're not really, there's no freedom for the residents that have to stay there. They have a monitor on their body that will alert the entire facility if they try to leave. Um, there's not really, well, at that nursing home, there wasn't really a lot of engagement with the residents other than from the daily, you know, nursing interaction. Um, there wasn't anything that said, you're still alive and we want to create uh, the rest of your life with you. That's productive and meaningful. It was like, basically you're dead and you're just here until you die. Mm. And so working with people who are incarcerated, the carceral system, the DOCs and the BOPs treat people the very, uh, very similarly of um, you're here to die basically. And there's not really much that we have to provide to you or that we are going to provide to you other than keeping your heart beating, which uh, a lot of times isn't even that. Um, And so working as a public defender for as long as I have been, definitely have started off thinking that I was 
doing a good thing by being a public defender and I'm helping people get out of jail. I'm helping people uh, re-enter the world after being incarcerated. I'm helping keep people from stepping into a jail. Um, but then after the first couple years, which maybe for other people takes less time, um, realize that I'm absolutely part of this system. I'm part of the criminal justice system. I'm part of keeping it moving. I'm part of keeping it alive. I get paid because people go to jail every day. Um, and so for me, like I'm at a point where I'm questioning, can I really do this and call myself an abolitionist? And that's a personal, a personal question that I have for myself. I think all that was so important because it's your experience. And I think that us sharing about these experiences is, is how like we grow and, and people listening that have had the same ones are going to relate and, and can build on that. And then others like students right now who are thinking about what they're, there's a lot of students who are already coming in to social work programs fired up already about abolition. Right. And so that's a whole other thing that social work is going to schools of social work has to deal with and they're dealing with it because they're getting the fire <laughs> from the students. Um, Cause it's like, you come in fired up about abolition and then you get trained to be part of a carceral system, right? Oppressive system. You're telling like a different story, like how you, you know, you came in, you think you're doing it, you're being helpful. And I can really relate to that too, thinking like, oh, I'm doing these things in these ways I've been trained. And then this like unlearning that has to happen as well. So I, I, I really appreciate it. And it's an unlearning. And I think what I, where I was going was that, in those moments when I'm really thinking of like, wow, I really want to quit my job because I can't be a part of this anymore. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like this thing where there's so many people that are public defenders and who think they are also freeing people and freedom fighters and, and doing great work, but are continuing to cause harm in the way that they interact with people and the way that they represent people and the way that they honor and uphold our laws and the ways that that operates. And there are a lot of lawyers who do fight against that and, and are pushing to change laws because that's the only way to, to change the system is to change laws at this point before abolishing. Um, but there are a lot of lawyers who don't see abolition as a goal. And that is troubling um, to know that there's a lot of public defenders who are accepting this as the way that the world is instead mm -hmm. of trying to challenge it. I guess I can um, jump in. So similar to um, Vivian, <laughs> soon when I, when I had my, my field placements as a social work student, I was like, yeah, this isn't it. Like I, I knew I wanted to work um, with young folks. So like my first placement was that a program for children with incarcerated parents. So trying to help them maintain connection, like through letters, visits, like we help provide that when parents um, came home, help connect them to resources if they if there was some kind of like custody battle or whatever. And, and that, that was pretty cool. Um, but then I was at a, a mental health outpatient clinic um, where everyone there, for the most part, was court mandated. And so it was sort of like us working with like probation officers or parole officers because they had to check in to make sure that they was meeting their sessions. And I remember meeting guys who would like have to take off of work to make sure that they hit a session or um, 
or had to leave a session early because they needed to make it home because of curfew, because we were only open in the evenings because we tried to make it so that uh, those who needed to work could work and then come um, to the sessions that they needed. And I really respected uh, my supervisor because he wasn't down for like calling parole officers, probation officers. Most of the time they had to show up because we weren't like, you know, trying to kind of give them um, that, that, that information they wanted. But I was just like, yo, this ain't it. Like, if, if like, how do, how do I, how do I be a part of something that's, that's bigger that can kind of like change this? So I started to think about like policy. So that's what I went to Columbia for was to study policy. How can I get involved with this? Because most of the people who's making, who's kind of advocating for certain laws or, or passing laws don't look like the people that um, they're trying to, uh, um, that laws are, are defining. So uh, but then on that road, I got into research and I was like, yo, how can I control my own work? They're like, yo, go get a PhD. You do the research you want to do or whatever. You have to be at a school. So there's that whole, like, you know, the academic thing. Um, and I, I kind of found my niche uh, with that, even though the policy job I did have, you know, Cam introduced me to Vinny Shiraldi, uh, who ran the Justice Lab. And I, I wouldn't say, and to my knowledge, uh, there aren't too many folks in the justice lab who identify as abolitionists, but we did pretty much like abolitionist kind of work. So basically going around in different jurisdictions, trying to get them to scale back on their use of youth prisons. And I remember um, having a meeting with the 12 youth judges in Milwaukee and their concern was like, well, if we stop locking them up, we, lo- we like we lose our job. So that's that's the concern with everyone, like not the well-being of the kids. But okay, let's do some reducing, but like, how do we still keep our job? So I'm like, yeah, see, this is part of the problem. Like, you know, like if you're not thinking that ultimately, like we won't need you, then how much like good are you really trying to do? So that's what ultimately led me to kind of like research, but then also understanding kind of, I think part of the question was like, how does social work kind of like go against abolition? Like I think social work licensing. So a a bunch of my friends are directly impacted folks. Um, So if anyone's not kind of familiar with that language, formerly incarcerated folks who are doing social work, I think about how much it takes for them to get licensed and all the kind of, um, what do you call it? The, um, the, the, all the paperwork that they have to go through and um, the statements of good conduct that they have to collect, depending on what their charge was just to get a license. And the fact that we don't have a universal license. So depending on where you are, like what you have to do to, in order to practice, it just kind of, it just reminds me of like criminal legal policy, how every jurisdiction is something different. Like no one wants to have a universal system because then it makes it a lot harder to do the work that we're trying to do because things look so different. So you have to be really localized and kind of the, the advocacy that you want to do. So, and I'll pass. My licensing hit me. I'm supposed to take my LC exam. And I'm just like completely avoiding it. Cause like, what's the point? I'm already doing the work. Um, and also just remembering school, there were just like so many people who graduated who were like, we want to do private practice. We have a parent who's going to front like us to go into private practice and we're going to have a clinical supervisor who will support us for three years and then we'll be a clinician. And like that's that was their main goal in going to social work school. And I did not know that coming into social work school, that that's what social workers could do. I had no concept of like private practice as a part of social work. So I was like, why wouldn't you go into a PhD program? Why wouldn't you become a psychologist or psychiatrist? And then just understanding that it's like an easy in, or this is the way, or it's the way that you like, like, I also think we have to talk about like the social constructions of like white womanhood and like what's a considered proper job before you get married to other folks. 
I know that this might be off track from abolition, but in thinking about it's all connected capitalism, (laughs) it's like, that just hit me so hard. Like the way that other people were graduating and stepping into space. And like, I came here with a really clear comprehension that when I was in undergrad, I was doing a lot of writing. I was supposed to go do research and I wanted to learn how to do the direct practice work and really like get involved in, if I'm going to do research, I also need to not hold space and coming out of community organizing where people were like getting burnt out, but not really understanding how to, how to do some of that. And the people I knew who were doing that in community were social workers. So in my brain, social workers were community organizers and aunties from the community who held space and then going to school and seeing that that's not what it was really, really was confusing. I think it's still confusing. I think it's going to be confusing for all the students who are walking in the door looking for an abolitionist space, right? Like that's also how this collective came together because it was like, we need to be able to have these conversations and so some examples and also highlight the ways in which, you know, we're trying something. Um, I don't know where I'm going with all this because I was, I, I, I felt touched by things that folks were saying and a little maybe triggered by them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to pause. And Michelle, what you said made me think about a couple of things. And one, you know, we, this, the NAASW was born, if you will, like in the last year during the uprisings and in part in response to like social workers being touted as the replacement or for police or the like right partnership with police. And to say directly, like, like social workers partnering with police is not the answer. And even saying social workers replacing police is not the answer and misses a larger conversation about like what people need. There's a, a, a piece that came out from Mimi Kim, Leah Jacobs, and then like seven or six other people wrote this piece around sort of carceral social work and defunding the police. And in it, they talk about, they offer a definition of carceral social work, which is sort of saying that like, there's the direct partnership with law enforcement. And that I think includes like working with police and working for prisons and probation, but also like Darrell was getting at sort of working uh, running ATIs where you're violating people and sending them back to carceral systems. So that's one is like the direct sort of link to carceral systems, but then two is all the logics that underlie sort of carceral systems, whether it's white supremacy or capitalism or coercion. And um, and so, so much of social work is connected to these larger car- carceral logics that aren't necessarily directly sort of partnering with law enforcement, but reinforcing the idea that like an individual is the problem. I remember the first place that I worked was a preventative services around families. I'm like, I thought we did, we did some good work, I think, but it was so much about individuals and there was, there was actual like funding restrictions on the ability to do more sort of advocacy related work. Um, I'll give one other example, which is a bit, I don't know, it's a weird thing to say, but I'll just give it. Somebody texted me today and there's a protest happening this weekend. They were like, do you want to get arrested in, in this sort of civil disobedience? And I like, the, the answer was immediately no, in part because I have a record for something, uh, but also because I work inside prisons and I want to be able to get inside prison. So like if I get, I already have an arrest, if I get arrested again, that like is going to make it hard for me to go inside. And that's a reality that I have to contend with and have to, and I decided to say no, but it's just, a, it's, a, it's on the fringes of this conversation, but it's relevant in that like so much is pushing us away from the kind of direct protest organizing that actually gets to the collective solutions. Yeah, all of that. And we haven't even talked about child welfare. And it's one of the largest systems of social work, right? Like so many graduating social workers are going to go work in child welfare, bachelor's level, especially, you know, 
and now it's more of like supposedly about family re- reunification, but really, you know? Yeah. And I think that the criminal legal system and the family regulation system are where a bunch of the things that are wrong with social work collide. So the licensure, the mandated reporting and the carceral nature of social work right now all kind of collide in those two systems. Um, And with the licensure, I mean, for me, it's kind of this like circular thing that I go, that goes on in my head. So especially with the clinical license and people are probably tired of, well, this group is not tired of hearing about it, but all my friends are. Um, And so it's like, we have these like the licensures and and the clinical one, especially which is based on not, well, you know, a lot of social work now is based on knowledge of the DSM, which I find horrifyingly fascinating because the DSM is rooted in racism and white men's judgment of others and what's wrong with others. And so we have this whole tie and connection with medical social work and with the DSM that one of our placement exams for our license is based in. And then we have this power to drop dime on people, basically, if we decide they're not a good parent, if we decide their kids are in danger. And why do we have that power? I don't, I don't want that power. I don't think a lot of us should have that power. But there's a lot of social workers who embrace that power and call it being a professional. Um, so that, that is also one reason to abolish social work and come up with, well, and several reasons to come up with a way to abolish social work or what we define as what social work is defined as right now. And why Michelle, what you said, a lot of folks are coming into social work to do is to get that power and to get, and I don't agree with that either of like, that's not why I went to social work either. And was similarly shocked that my peers wanted to be private practitioners. And I was told that social work school was about social justice. And so to find, you know, having to find kindred spirits at that time, you know, my five friends at social work school and everybody else was on this other track that I didn't understand. Um, And I think now more than ever, thankfully, there's a lot of pockets of folks, not even pockets, big groups of people that are, that are working to change mandated reporting to change or to get get away, get away from mandated reporting. Um, I don't know about licensure, but that's something that I want to work on. Um, and because like Darrell said, there are so many people that are kept from that licensure who are directly impacted people and the folks that we are supposed to be partnering with as social workers and they're, they're left out and they're kept out. So yeah, there's this, there's all of these different things that kind of collide in social work, um, that I hope that more and more students and more and more people in the field are changing their mind about and, and realizing, yeah, this is the work that we have to do and the work that we have to do is going to put us out of our jobs. So let's find a way to be happy about that and work towards that goal. Yeah. Just to jump in too, when you're talking about licensure, you know, I had the, the honor to interview one of the founders of NABSW, right? The National Association of Black Social Workers, Mr. Garland Jaggers, who was there in 68. And Dr. Denise McLean Davison, who's their national archivist and who's a professor at Morgan State. And they were both very clear that they were one of the loudest and first organizations that said, no, like w- there should not be licensure, you know? And so I just want to give props to them, you know, because they've been strong in that position for a long time now. And it's also kind of, 
it's not difficult, but it's, it's a conversation to be had because I understand that as people of color, we want to be professionals. We want to get our licenses. We want our degrees. We want this because there's, there's the things that we've been kept away from too. Um, and so I want to celebrate also when students get their, when they're graduating and when they get their licenses. But I, I think what those licenses mean and what we have, what we have to do to get them, which is just do our work basically. Um, that needs to change and the power that those, that those whole changes, because in New York, I don't know about other places like Darrell said, they're, they're different. The licensing is different everywhere, but in New York, there's two licenses that are different. One is not better. They're different. And one has the power to do things that the other does not have to do, but um, that does not have the power to do those things, which are um, provide psychotherapy and make treatment plans based on that, assessment and sometimes make recommendations about medication. Those are three of the things. Um, but it gives, it stratifies social workers in New York to the point where those with the clinical license, not everybody, but a lot of social workers with the clinical license. And then by extension, folks who are looking at social workers give that clinical license more weight. It's better. It's almost like having an advanced degree and it's not an advanced degree. Um, and so unnecessarily stratifies, stratifies social workers because I could probably pass the LCSW exam too, but because I have not been supervised by somebody who can give me my hours, I can't get that license. doesn't mean that I don't know what another person is doing with as much experience as me or that I don't know how to do what an LCSW does. It just means that I didn't have that type of supervision. Um, so anyway, that was my rant on, on licensure. Sorry, I'm going to be quiet now. Yeah, really, really quick to follow up on that. I, th- I think it's, it's very much in, in Kim, you've written about this and like I've, this is in a lot of conversation. Like social work, I feel like it's still like fighting for an idea. It's like going through this identity crisis to where like they've been fighting forever to be recognized as as a profession. Like, I mean, they make everyone read Flexner's is social work a profession who's not even a social worker. So someone who has nothing to do with the profession saying whether it's legitimate or not. And this fight for legitimacy is the reason why we have all these licensures. Like in Illinois, um, you have to get licensed if you want to work in a school. So like it's, it's, it's if you want to do special types of social work, like there's a license for it, which makes entirely no sense. Because if you drive kind of two hours away and you go to Wisconsin, it looks totally different. And I think it, it's all trying to be seen um, in the same light as like economist and like psychology and like the medical field. When to me, one of the things I, f- I love about social work is how interdisciplinary it is in nature. Like we take some from like psych and from econ and from sociology, and then we all do our own thing that centers around like social justice. And the fact that, um, and then like, you know, focusing on people and then not just people, but um, the role that the environment plays in those kind of things. And I think um, we, we, we say that that's what we care about, but like, that's not kind of like what our, what our action shows. So um, I think that plays a large role in kind of the reason why we have all these barriers to, to practice in certain, in certain senses. So let's shift a little bit in terms of like, how can social workers implement and even beyond social work let how can people implement an abolitionist approach to their work and their lives there's some framing that i've been sort of thinking about over the last maybe year and i i'm still trying to identify exactly where this comes from but i'm 
maybe it's Gramsci, who I didn't even know was a person until in the last six months, but uh, there's a sort of a framework that comes out of anti-fascist work in Italy in sort of 30s or 40s, I believe. Anyhow, the, the idea is sort of thinking about the state and the power of the state and the uh, different strategies around the state. And so there's work against the state, there's work outside of the state, and there's work inside the state. And that, when I sort of heard that and thought about social work, it made a lot of sense to me to think about abolition in terms of work against the state, work outside the state, and work inside and around the state. And so much of social work is is implicated in state power. Um, and that sounds sort of like highfalutin, but like so much of social work is connected to state funding, to like calling the state and police and child welfare and whatever. So that sort of framework has helped me think about the different ways in which I'm trying to do abolitionist work. And some of that's about work against the state to get people out of prison, to reduce the size and the harm of carceral systems. There's work I'm engaged with outside of the state, which like mutual aid work, restorative and transformative justice, trying to like help resolve conflicts and harms completely outside of the state. And then there's work, like I said earlier, about I, I do, I'm a part of a program that goes into one of the prisons here in, in, in New York State. And that's like through a nonprofit that goes into a New York State prison. Um, and it's not a direct partnership. I mean, in a, in a way, it's a partnership. It's not working for the, for the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, but it's working with them. Um, and like, I would argue that that work is abolitionist in spirit, but it's still in some ways legitimizing the idea that prisons should exist. So I think that the work outside and against the state is pretty clear for me. The work inside and around the state is where I think we're grappling a bit with how do we do that um, and discern what's the right move in any given moment. I feel like Cameron's always very eloquent and has all the theories and has read everything. And I'm like, I'm just here. This is how you do it. Um, so I don't have that framework, but I'm going to read that person so I can have that framework because I think that's a good way of thinking about it and more organized. But my unorganized way of thinking about that is, and it comes from being a public defender because that's the social work that I've done, but outside of that, also facilitating processes around accountability and resolving harm outside of systems, outside of calling the police, which I have found, I've gotten a lot of learning from that for myself. Um, on the next time that I'm encountered with harm and conflict to take more than a moment to think about how can I resolve this without entering a system or without calling the police or calling a system. And as a survivor, which a lot of people are survivors, that's hard. And it's difficult to think about that because you don't know what's going to happen beyond not calling the police. You don't know how things are going to get resolved beyond relying on what we all have relied on for centuries, for decades. Um, and so it, there is a lot of unlearning. And so with the unlearning, that's what I've done as a public defender is really just read a lot of how laws came about and, and all of that, all of this information is out there, how these laws came about from back from when the colonizers came here and how the DSM came about from whoever met that first time and decided we need to codify this and describe people's behaviors and give it a name and a little code. And how did the family regulation system come about with some people came together? And what I came up with is that all of these things were created by people who came together a long time ago, mostly white folks, and said, hey, this is the way that we're going to govern and rule the world. And they made these laws, however many years ago, Native people, Black people, people of color, colonized people were not a part of that decision making. 
And now we're here and we are part of the decision-making now. And now we're reclaiming our time. And now we are reclaiming our ancestry and our roots and our land. And so now it's time for us to revisit all of those laws and be a part of making new ones, if that's what we want, be a part of making new systems, if that's what we want. Um, and so that's how it's kind of, I simplified it in my mind. And that's why I talk about it with people now, including the people who I work with who are facing time or who are incarcerated is that, and also my office. And they, you know, I'm often the one that's like, whatever, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. This is never going to happen. And that's what they said about restorative justice five years ago, um, which now it's, you know, it's not that it's taking off or that it never has been a thing, but in my office, at least it was not a concept that people could wrap their minds around. And now it is five years later. So I think that the more people talk about, like, these are just laws, they're made up, all of these things are made up. And it's, it's up to us to undo them and relearn and reteach and figure out what's best for everyone. Um, and so that's what I'm on now. I hope it doesn't take five years. Something tells me it's going to take longer than five years, but I hope it takes less than five years for people to realize that we can just not pay attention to these things or fight against these things as simple as it was for people to put this together however many hundred years ago it's we're gonna have to dismantle it hello all of that um i was like gramsci that's i haven't heard that name in a long time organic intellectuals makes me think of like malcolm x and all the folks who like just take you know just take the theories and make it applicable to folks and make it relevant and allow people to feel and hold it. And so when I think about my engagement with abolition, I think about my coming to social work, it was so much of like, oh, I want to learn how to do this because there were things that happened throughout the course of my life, survivorship, family-ish, <laughs> that was just like, I want to know how to deal with this. And I was like, being back in this time with COVID where we have to go a little bit slower, coming back to family and doing some of the healing work there and trying to figure out how to have this conversation with them is in many ways where I find that I'm like learning the tools to do this work, having the intergenerational conversation, talking about harms that have been done, talking about um, how do we like address depression? How do we address like living with certain needs and things in that space um, and get through that. And the reason why I mentioned this, cause I just think that like an organ, there's a different level of like, stuckness that happens in family um that i think like if we can conquer this together that i'm gonna get free with you and no one's getting left behind and that means that yes we might have had a little bit of something through becoming police officers through being social workers or whatever but i'm going to let that go so you can come up with me and we're going to figure that out together then can really have a model for moving that forward so it's been really nice to come so this moment where literally having like younger cousins and older folks who are like in their eighties and like, we've had conversations and are dealing with things um, that we haven't really ever reckoned with that were not accessible to me when I was younger. Um, and I feel like if we can continue this and move past this, even after this moment of COVID where we've reconnected, then that's a, for me, that feels like a practice in abolition. Yeah, I'll be I'll be brief. Uh, echo everything everyone said. I think like personally thinking through kind of like the question around like how I practice this. Um, because I'm a doc student, all I do is read and write. Like I practice it in my writing and being intentional, intentional with like language that I use 
And even like pushing back when I have to write a paper and I use abolition as a theory and they're like, oh, you can't do it. I'm like, well, if you don't understand it, that's your problem. Like that doesn't mean I can't use it and apply it. So kind of um, and then uh, kind of I use it in like my self-care. So like I'm really big on like community work. So I also teach on the inside um, in, in Illinois and work with like the Final Five campaign, which is like a youth abolitionist group. Um, all that stuff kind of keeps me centered and grounded. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in the world of academia and like how toxic that can be. And then being intentional who I work with. So like, if I don't believe in you as a person, I'm probably not going to work with you. And and it's like, I I won't, there's no kind of tension between folks. It's just, if I'm investing any time outside of like family life, it's like it has to kind of be worth it uh, for me. So those little things keep me keep me going. I really appreciate all of that. And you all touched on so many different aspects to it as well. And I think that those are all examples of like ways people can put this into practice that are all accessible because they're all like different ways. So it's not like I think that's one of the key things is like there's not one right way which is also part of the unlearning because I know like for me, I'm so ingrained of like, and I, and I hear this from students too, of like, just tell me what to do. Like, tell me how to do it. And it gets complicated because who's been doing it and how do you do it? And we don't live in a abolitionist society. Otherwise, like we'd probably have a better sense of how to do it. Right. So what do you all think about how, like, how do you engage with people who are not abolitionists, who don't identify, maybe they've never heard of this, maybe, you know, and everyone's in different places, right? But what are some ways to help move people towards this approach? And like, how does that connect also to like the work you're doing as a collective? Um, Those are actually some of my favorite conversations to have, depending on who the person is, because some people are just like assholes, like, oh, whatever. But um, it's often like a, like a Q and a back and forth, because like, I always talk to, especially when it comes around like prison abolition, right? Like not even just abolition is kind of the historical roots of it. Like I always come to the fact that I ask people, like if we have over a 70% recidivism rate, like how is the system working? So if you don't believe in abolition, that there's another way, there's something else we should be doing. Please tell me how, what we're doing is kind of like, um, is working at all. And then how come it's always like you don't care until it's like somebody in your family. So you're, you're, the person who's in front of a judge is your brother or your cousin or like your child is 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 when we seem to kind of care. And they never kind of like really have an, an answer. And I also think it's because people don't even really understand what abolition is. They think it's this utopia, like open all the cells, let everyone out. There's no accountability. There's no healing. There's no kind of like community investment. So I, I think that, that was the point of the class that I taught. So I got to teach a class on abolition. It was not to make anyone in my class an abolitionist. It was just so that if anyone asks you what abolition is, you can give them an answer. And like that, that's all I really cared about was that you understood something kind of like, you know, something concrete. And I would get the question, how come we don't, how come like you have all these speakers, Michelle came to my class and did like a super awesome job. Like, why do you have all these speakers? How come you don't invite a cop? I'm like, because that's the dominant narrative. If you want to see what a cop's point of view is, just turn the TV on. Mm -hmm. Like why in these spaces with something that's not kind of like 
the 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 dominant ideology we have to give space to kind of like opposition or whatever so so it's 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 once we kind of get on that level playing field then it's like oh you know what like maybe like you know okay i i, I can see and yeah i'm not down like be like oh yeah i'm converting people but like i'm always interested in that conversation because i can i can barely get an answer with how the system we have now is actually working and how it doesn't do more harm than good yeah i think that is a good approach to like ask those questions and put it back on the person where now they're the there because so much of it is like right like the first thing that always comes up and i've been like i did another interview um on i did a prison abolition interview you know i had a guest on speaking about prison abolition uh k and uh some of you may know and I, I deliberately did not ask this question, but then people were like, well, why didn't you ask it, right? Because it's always like, well, what do we do with murderers? What do we do with rapists, right? It's always, that always comes up and it's like, well, how's that working right now, right? Because we know that, like, I mean, that's a whole bigger conversation, but it's just like what you're saying, Darrell, is like the current system that is in place, like how is that working, right? And who is it working for and who is it not working for, you know? So I think that's, I think that's always a good approach of like, and that's something I'm even trying to work on more with like my teaching rather than sometimes providing information, just asking more and more questions and, you know, someone's got an issue, they can, they can, they can give the rationale, they can, they can explore, right? Like, how do you, how do you explain that we're saying we're about social justice, but this, this, and this happens where we're locking people up and we're taking people's kids away like how does how does that work tell me <laughs> you know that's a hard that how do you right like that's it's not easy to answer that and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be sorry going i was going on a little bit there but feeling it you're feeling it. <laughs> yeah i am i love this conversation yeah. this gives this gives me energy talking with you all i just think that it has to also be a conversation about why we're so into punishment um, and when I, when I heard you talking, I mean, remind me of conversations I have parents around corporal punishment, you know, like this is the way to teach this is the way to learn. And why is it that it has to be something that involves, um, humiliating someone, devaluing someone's humanity in order for them to do something different in order for them to fit into society. And then we cast folks out. And Vivian, you said in the beginning, like reconnecting with our traditions, I think a lot about Toni Morrison and memory and like just being able to connect back, like that's not what other countries are doing. And even if folks can't connect back to like an indigenous practice, that's not what European countries are doing. <laughs> so like, let's have that conversation. And Darrell, when you're talking about like this other, like being able to just like see the other narrative, there's so many other ways and it's just not the dominant way here. And why is that? What is that caught up in? I think, you know, we want to get heady about it. I think about the Protestant ethic. I think a lot about religion and how punishment comes back to like, are you deserving of, divine like love and care and it depends on how you think about that like in my world my god definitely thinks that i and all my people deserve love and care but that's not the reality for a lot of folks and so some of the conversations i have have to get to that level being able to understand where folks values are coming from and in that way sometimes it is okay for them they have a dominant figure and that dominant figure is then the one articulating what their world looks like which a lot of times is about punishment and not being deserving and we have to be able to have those conversations with folks i think when folks get shut down when it feels like their experiences aren't heard or understood um then that can become a problem so yeah a couple of different thoughts come up from listening to everyone and like 
if people already sort of are on board with domination being the opposite of what we want, then I think that's a good starting place. And you can sort of work back and say like, all of these things are reinforcing domination. And so let's get rid of punishment. Let's get rid of prisons. It's, it's not, I think it's a less harder. So um, I think what, we were saying this, but there's like getting at the dissonance between what people think something is and what the reality of it is. And to what Michelle was saying about like what we don't haven't learned, right? This is like, especially as a white person, there's so much that I haven't learned because of my socialization and the teachings. Um, the other thought I have that like is something that I've been trying to do in, inside myself the last year is like getting closer to the paradoxes and the tensions. And that goes a little bit to what Michelle's saying about like if we got to meet people out where they're a little bit. And like, I have feelings of revenge and like wanting retribution. And I also know that that's like not going to give me what I need. And so like acknowledging the reality of people's feelings while also trying to name the reality of like systems and policies that don't actually get us closer to what we want. Um, and then one other sort of piece about the paradoxes around violence, which comes up a lot is like people want some scaled, alternative that just doesn't exist yet um and what we have doesn't work or it works the way it works in sort of oppressive ways so yeah and then there's the the i don't want to say the part but the, the very real existence of prisons and the carceral system as an extension of slavery and as um designed to to do exactly what it's supposed to do, which is to oppress people of color and black people and marginalized people and poor people, um, which it is very successful at doing. Um, and my answer to folks who ask like, what about the rapists and what about the murders who are my, my friends are asking me that question all the time um, because my friends do not, are not social workers and do not work in carceral systems. Um, so th those are a lot of the questions that I get from my family and friends. Um, and I think it's in one way it's I'm happy that people do not have to work in carceral systems and happy that people are removed from seeing that. But at the same time, I wish that most people could be more connected and see it for what it is so that they can't, can't ignore it. I think a lot of people in the world can ignore it because it is not there in front of their face at the, you know, as much as it, as it, as it can be, I guess it is there. It is right in front of people's faces. They just don't see it. Um, I think a lot of times and, um, but, uh, but agreeing with what everybody said about it's, it's not keeping, uh, I don't know if people said this, but it's, it's not keeping communities safer. It's the, the carceral system does not keep communities safer, safer. Um, it also doesn't provide for survivors and victims. So if folks think that the carceral system, the way it exists provides for folks and supports folks who have been impacted by harm or harmed by crime or, impacted by crime, crime, any kind of crime, violence, financial, there's no, there's no, I, I, at least as far as I can see from sitting right there, there's nothing that happens with folks who are survivors or victims. They, other than somebody going to jail, which sometimes I don't get to talk to, to folks who are survivors and victims in federal cases, but the times that I have, that's not what they wanted. They didn't want somebody to go to jail. They didn't want somebody to suffer. They didn't want somebody to, even die. What they wanted was to make, to know that it would never happen again to them or to anybody else. Um, and perhaps something else that would provide them healing that the government did not give them. And there's this thing in the criminal legal system that, you know, judges sentence people 
uh, to an appropriate punishment for various reasons. And one of those is deterrence. And deterrence is supposed to create this fear in people, like, see what happens if you do this? You don't want to do it, do you? To the person who's getting sentenced and to the people that are in the world. So, um, and there's even literature and knowledge that deterrence doesn't work because nobody's really finding out what people are getting for doing certain things, what kind of sentence people are getting. So you're not deterring the general public and you're also not deterring that person specifically. You may not be because if you're sending them to prison for something that's rooted in, in that person's poverty or oppression and you haven't solved that, which prison is not going to solve that and you haven't healed that person, they're not going to be deterred. There's not, if you're not, providing people with resources, with food, with adequate shelter, with basics, with this, with respect, with dignity, with employment, with the things that they want and need, it's not going to deter anybody from doing what they were doing before. Also, when people get incarcerated just for being who they are, loitering on the street, walking down the block while being black, driving, in, you know, like, in addition to the fact that now we're just changing up laws. And so one day it's not okay to have this much marijuana on you. And the next day it's like, Ooh, that's just recreation, which like, you know, I'm some oversimplifying it, but. It just show. I mean, it shows like what Vivian was saying about a group of white Christian men getting together, colonizers and coming up with all these laws. Right. And like how arbitrary they can be as well. I mean, they're not arbitrary in the sense that like, they were all designed to support them, right? And like their property. It was really, you know, and when I, when Cam, when you were talking about like the state and then y'all are talking about like violence, Vivian's talking about violence, like the state is the biggest perpetrator of violence, right? Poverty is violence. I mean, I know you all know this, but I just want to put it out there. Like we're, you know, we're focused on so-called violent crime here and there, which is much less than the violence that the state is impacting on people's lives on a daily basis, you know, or, or 600,000, over 600,000 people in the U.S. dying of COVID, for ex right, for example, what we've experienced this last year, you know, and that type of violence. And, and, but they're building more prisons every day, which is another form of violence, <laughs> what it does to communities and families. So I, I think, you know, I, I appreciate the conversation. I think it's for me, it's like this evolution, you know, it's like this ever evolving process. And I hope that people listening, you know, can be open to that process and those contradictions. Cause, cause there's at least for me, there's no way you can do this work and not be stuck in that contradiction because of the system that we're in, right? Of like, gotta have a job. What does that mean? Then if you're, if you wanna be, you know, working for abolition all of that and people who are going to be graduating from social work or people who are starting out in social work and they're trying to like field, right? You all were talking, some of you were talking about field placements and the new, um, the 2022 uh, EPAs from the council on social work education is like anti-racism's all in there now. And like faculty and administrators are going to model anti-racism and field placements. And it's like, really? Like, how is that going to happen? Like, do you know who all these people are? <laughs> like, I mean, seriously. Um, so it all, but it all connects to what you're talking about, right? So like you're the people coming in fired up about abolition and then they go in a, they're in a um, family surveillance field placement. And then what? 
they're going to start talking abolition. They're going to get they're going to get put on a performance improvement plan. <laughs> they're going to get kicked out of the placement. So I'm just I'm kind of going off about it, but these are like very real issues for people who are who are doing this work, like you all know, and getting involved in this work of like there's going to be major blowback on on folks and how do people navigate that like how do you all navigate that have you been able to kind of carve out you know roles where like you can do this and still be in your role Vivian you were kind of saying you're not sure how long that can hold up I don't I don't really get I mean other than the like um I don't know just basically people not listening to me at the job. There's no blowback of like, don't, you can't talk about that. Or you can't say that it's more of my own internal, like how long, how much longer can I do this mm. and call myself an abolitionist. Um, and so it's either I do move in the direction where I am now of like, I'm not going to shut my mouth anymore. Like I'm very free flowing in the office and not when I'm in court and not when I'm talking to service providers and not when I'm talking to POs, but like that's the direction that I'm moving into is like I might work myself out of a job by opening my mouth too much. I don't have a problem with that. Um, or, or I quit. So I think those are the two paths of, you know, I keep talking until I get fired or I quit. And maybe I won't get fired. Maybe other people will come along on this journey. Yeah. Um, I feel like because I'm a student, there, there is a privilege of being a student with how much you can, you can push almost. Right. And I, and I push a lot. Um, and I think uh, I'm interested to see what happens. So I plan to, to stay in academia. I plan to apply for tenure track positions and I'm interested to see how receptive um, the Academy is going to be to me. Like, you know, I, I have a piece coming out on like abolition. Uh, um, I've, I'll, by the time I graduate, I will have taught my class three times. So like abolition is all over my CV. And I feel like a lot of times faculty are super supportive of students who try to do like this, whatever is deemed like radical work or whatever. It's like students trying to push the field. But I wonder how receptive they, they'll be to a colleague to when like now it's like this isn't your, your advisee anymore. This is someone who's on the same kind of like level as you in, in a sense. So I'm I'm intrigued to see what what happens next. But I have colleagues who who's in the academy and like you're not know, pretty pretty uh big schools. So it's like there 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 is the the there seems to be a pathway. But I, I'm I'm interested to see like how how this momentum continues, even with like you know CSW statements. Like I'm 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 waiting for us to get past the statements and get to the action because like we've been doing these anti-racist statements for forever and like so we'll, we'll see how that goes but yeah yeah um the organization i'm at right now there's no pushback i'm like a lot of folks i work with are abolitionist and work alongside of and so it's nice to be able to have these conversations when we're talking about what does it look like as a nonprofit to be able to hold that space and where there's that tension i guess that has been a big part of my role is like leaning into what does, as a leader, like what then can I be doing in that space to allow folks to explore it and bring it into the organization without like co-opting it or making it into something that has to fit into a bubble. But I will say like, having, I worked in schools before this and then I worked in child welfare, the family regulation system. And 
Whereas in family regulation system, we were just trying to get like undoing racism to come in. And that was really hard. And I got pushed to the side, got a lot of pushback for that. It was like, these are some of the other issues. And it's not that there weren't other organizations doing it, but I do think that when in doing any sort of like bringing other conversations into these organizations, it's like who's on leadership that can like be in allyship with you to bring it forward and make it a priority. And if it's not a priority in the finances, if it's not the priority for the organization, then it's not going to be. I mean, I think it's really interesting when things do become buzzwords or become initiatives um, and how those live or get cast aside based on who is the person in charge, who has a tenure or who is transitioning through or brought in for that. Um, So I don't miss that. What I will say is that if you're in those spaces and you're trying to do something, there are HR protection laws that allow you to be in that space and try something. So if you're a social worker in a school, there are certain laws that protect you. And you can name like under my code of ethics, this, you can write HR letters, you know, being able to either get insurance outside of the school or work with a um, advisor outside of the space. I always say like, if you don't have a collective or some mentors to go to, then you're just out here alone on the branch and that's not cool. So being able to have some folks to uh, work things through and then also making those decisions when it is time to quit and go and understanding what that can look like for you. Cause sometimes that can be scary for folks who have families and other things that they need to take care of. And sometimes it's increments all can't happen right in that moment. Like I quit by Jerry Maguire out the door. So that's okay. <laughs> you know, but you can figure out what, what that is for you. And that's really important. Cause I think people are hard on themselves. I'm like, I need to do this today, but this, this was here before you came into this field. It will be here Hopefully not forever, but it will be here for a while. So take your time, figure it out um, and work with others because you're uh, imagining and assuming that you're alone or that you're the only one who can make change is huge ego and collective. Gotta be about the collective. Michelle, I love everything you just said. And for some reason, now I'm thinking about Jerry Maguire and I'm like, Jerry Maguire and it's a good idea, but don't Jerry Maguire yourself alone. You got to do it with other people. Otherwise you're just like losing a job. Um, Cause part of what I was thinking about as you're talking, Michelle is like some of us, like I think you and your, and where I'm at, like it is one of our political homes and we're able to have like the organization might not be explicitly sort of stating everything we might want, but it's a place where we can have these conversations and, and be a peer sort of, thinking together and not everybody has that and i think that that's real and i have a friend colleague and they just were deciding between two jobs and one was clearly going to be a place for them where they like would already have a political home and the other one they have to build it in sort of a hostile environment and they decided to go with the one that was a bit more hostile for a variety of reasons but they sort of knew that going into it and i think if you don't know going into that and then you go into that and you're like so there's and the other thing i'll say is i just we just hired someone at my job and like every, we interviewed six or seven people. Every person was asking about abolition and like, that just wouldn't have happened two years ago. Um, and so people have different expectations. Um, I guess the, the last thing I'll say is that like, for those folks who don't, whose day job isn't their political home, which I think is probably more often the case than not like finding it elsewhere. And I get that that's hard for some people, depending on if you have children or other responsibilities, but that's partly why the NAASW was created, I think, to to be another political home for all of us in it and to try and create more political education for folks um, out in the social work world. Yeah, so that goes perfectly into my final question for you all is how can folks get involved? Well, 
I'll start us off. Um, so we're figuring that out right now. Actually, we're figuring. I think I joined um, when the group was already started. Thankfully, gratefully, and I think we're figuring out figuring out how to move forward because it was supposed to be a time limited project and was supposed to be over. And at least me personally, I've gotten a lot out of being with everyone and feel honored to meet new people and get to know people from the group that I already knew in a different way. And so we are figuring it out. I think there's more political education coming. I think we're trying to figure out how people can get involved with the group, how we're going to move forward for how long. One way that folks can get involved immediately is by filling out our survey, which is going, which it maps um, carceral social work, abolition social work, in different sectors and in different physical locations. Um, so we're working on, we're gathering that data now by the survey so people can go to our website and fill out the survey. It's pretty quick. It's, it's also meant to be educational and to get a conversation started in one's own head and with other folks in thinking about carceral social work and thinking about abolition social work. Um, so that's one immediate way that folks can get involved. So tell us the website and then I'll put, I'll make sure it goes in the show notes and on the podcast website. I believe it's in com. I want to say it's a .com. And uh, I'll just say really quick, because I don't think no one said it. Uh, the name is the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work. I think I was the last of the current members to join, like Cam invited me. Um, and I think it's like a super uh, dope group um, of folks with different backgrounds who all really care about the work. So sometimes I, I, I'll, I'll get into a group and it just feels like busy work. That's not that important. But like I, 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 I love late Wednesday nights with folks and seeing Michelle's amazing background and then watching Cam in Hawaii at one point, um, <laughs> you know, while we talk about like the role that social work and abolition and what, what this even is, um, I think it's super cool. Uh, and yeah, please folks fill the survey out. Um, I think that the information would be really important for the field, not just for us. I, I could say something about how we came to be, um, which is, this is like, again, an, an as the uprisings were happening last summer, a group of us started to meet on Zoom to think about what we could do around abolition and social work and like where we might collaborate on some kind of useful something. And over time that developed into what is now called the Network to Advance Abolition and Social Work. And the original idea was like, let's, let's not be so ambitious that we're like gonna build this massive thing that we can't actually realize. And I think some of us, have been involved in a in something called the social workers social workers against criminalization which we started in 2015 and we had like great ambitions um very little capacity and at least in my personal for me like not that much know-how and we what we did small things that weren't that i think were useful but they didn't it didn't last because we had these big ambitions and just not the capacity and know-how and so the strategy was sort of let's let's like let's start small and see how we go and so we created this what was going to be a year-long thing where we did political education we're doing some research we've created a website that is going to have more resources on it soon um 
And then we tried to sort of interject in social work month in March, sort of abolitionist ideas into the social work discourse and, and um, conversations. Um, and now I think all of us have felt, it's felt like a good space to be in. Like it's felt physically good, emotionally good. And we think we've done something useful. And so we're going to continue building the NAASW. I think it's great. I think it's really needed in our field and in the world. And that's why I'm so happy that you all took the time to come on the podcast and talk with me. And I just want to thank you all for doing the work in the community. Thank you. I also just want to add that um, we had a student intern and I just want to give her a shout out, Nakia Rahman, who was our student and who really made a lot of this possible. The website, our social media, um, all of the ads for our political education all came from our student. And so for all the students out there, this is work that you can do. This is work that you can get together with other students and interested faculty to do. Um, and just wanted to also give a shout out to the other members, Mimi Kim, Caitlin Becker, Sarah Knight, Rosie Rios, Tiffany McFadden, and Sheila Vakaria. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.